As we wrap up this afternoon, we want to think about the relationship between conversion and assurance. Um, that is to say, given all that we've thought about over the last uh, day uh, or so about conversion, what does it look like to actually have confidence that this is something that's happened to me? Uh, how can I have some reasonable basis uh, on which to believe that I've been converted? Uh, the Bible seems to think that, that there is such a basis, that this is a normal thing. Uh, the Apostle John wrote in his first letter, 1 John 5.13, he says, he, he said he's writing his letter, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. Right? This is a biblical idea that we should know, that we should have confidence that we have eternal life. So the question for us is how do we get that confidence? Where do we get it? There's going to be a lot of overlap with the things we've already talked about, um, specifically even the role of the church and the family. But, but I just want to suggest three things for us to see uh, with the time that I've got. First, let, let's just look briefly at a couple of bad places to look for assurance. Uh, second, let's see the, the best place to look for assurance. And then finally, what we ought to look for in order to have assurance. So bad places, the best place, and then what we should be looking for. So first, bad places to look for assurance. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, again, we've already addressed some of these things. But uh, the first bad place that I would suggest to look for your assurance is in your past profession of faith. All right, you know the drill. We encourage people to walk the aisle, to pray a prayer, to sign a card. And then we tell them, you know, we, they are 100% absolutely a child of God, right? We get them down on the, the field. We put it up on the jumbotron, right? And we also tell them, Never question that fact, right? We, we inoculate them, as Michael said, uh, to the gospel. Uh, the problem is with the Bible, because that's not what the Bible says, right? Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that there will be people on the day of judgment who are quite confident that they belong to Jesus, but it turns out they don't. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So the danger is that when we tell people to look back on a time when they trusted Jesus, when they said, Lord, Lord, we may very well be giving them false assurance. We may be telling them to ignore the very saving truth that they need to hear. So what we do in order to mitigate against that danger is, is we tell people, okay, well, here's the thing. It's not just your profession of faith. You have to make a sincere profession of faith, right? And, and so that, of course, leads to the question, well, how sincere do I need to be, right? We wind up like Linus, right, waiting for the great pumpkin who only comes, if you remember, to the most sincere of pumpkin patches, wondering if, if that moment of doubt that we had that one time thereby disqualifies us and casts doubt on our entire salvation. Right? And so what we do is we, we pray the prayer again, just in case it didn't take the first time, right? hoping eventually we'll hit the target. But then, again, I have my doubts, so I'm going to pray the prayer again and again, and we wind up in this never-ending loop of wondering if we've been sincere enough in our profession of faith to really be a Christian. It's a bad place. 
A second bad place to look for assurance is in the ordinances of the church. Now, I want to come back in a minute and tell you why I don't actually think that's true. But there is a bad way to look for assurance in the ordinances of the church, in, in the sacraments. Right? There's a danger in simply thinking that participating in baptism and in the Lord's Supper means that you're saved. I remember having a conversation with a good friend of mine. He was raised in the church. He still attends church most Sundays. And I'm fairly certain he's not converted. There's just really no evidence of spiritual life in him. So one night over dinner, I asked him, I think I mentioned last night, I asked this a lot of people who claim to be Christians. I asked him, I said, hey, in John chapter 3, Jesus says that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. So is that something that's happened to you? And so he kind of chewed his food for a minute and then said, yeah. So I asked him, okay, well, well tell me about that. When did that happen? What was that like? And he thought for a few moments and he said, well, I guess it happened when I was, I was baptized as a baby. Now, I was actually a little bit impressed because this is not a sort of theologically thoughtful guy, but that's actually the right answer in his particular Christian tradition. But I don't think that's the, the answer the Bible really encourages us to give. Right? That answer doesn't fit with the radical transformation that the Bible speaks of in our regeneration and our conversion that we've been thinking about this weekend. Right? There's really no evidence of repentance or faith in this man's life. And so whatever happened at the baptismal font 45 years ago, it doesn't appear to have actually regenerated him. I think the same could be said for the Lord's Supper. Many people are taught that their participation in the table of the Lord confers grace on them the grace that they need in order to be saved. But the problem with this, from decisions to sacraments, is that it makes salvation something that I can control, something that I make happen. Right? God makes it possible, and then I sort of apply myself to taking hold of it. But friends, God's grace isn't mechanical. Right? It doesn't get dispensed by the sort of turn of a, a sacramental knob, like a gumball from a machine. Right? It doesn't pop out when we pull the lever of the sinner's prayer. Right? It's not a game where we're in control and we can do things that make God beholden to us. Rather, as we saw last night, conversion is God's work from stem to stern. Our involvement is simply a response to what he's done. So then where should we look for assurance? Well, the answer might not shock you. Jesus. Right? He's, he's the only foundation that can support the weight of our assurance. We, we find assurance not by looking back at anything that I've done or am doing, but at Jesus himself. Let me point out three things about Jesus that I think provide assurance to us as his people. First, look at his character. Uh, throughout the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you see that he is marked by amazing tenderness towards sinners. In Luke chapter 4, verse 22, and we're told that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. The prophet Isaiah foretold that the Messiah would be tender-hearted towards the lowly. Isaiah 42, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Right, sometimes we might be tempted to think that, that Jesus is like a lion 
like ready to, to pounce on a wounded antelope, right? That, that what he really wants to do is take sinners and smash them. But, but friends, nothing could be further from the truth. He is not sort of waiting for you to make a mistake so that he can pounce on you. Jesus, it says, will not break us. He will not snuff us out in our weakness. In fact, it's Jesus's kindness towards tax collectors and prostitutes, towards the very lowest of the low, that scandalized all the good people in his day. I don't think you'll find one example in the Gospels of Jesus rejecting or speaking harshly to someone who was a notorious sinner. Right When the weak and the cripples and the unclean and the criminals and the outsiders and the perverts came to Jesus, they always found a warm and tender word. The only people Jesus condemned were the unrepentant hypocrites, the proud, the greedy, the self-righteous. You see, friends, Jesus doesn't merely tolerate sinners. He says that he came to seek and save the lost. So he calls out to them in Matthew chapter 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when we come to Jesus, we don't find him harsh. He's not difficult to please. Instead, he's gentle. He's quick to pardon our sins, quick to forgive us. Our assurance doesn't rest on the fact that we've made ourselves attractive to God. Our assurance comes from the fact that Jesus is so very merciful and patient and forbearing with us. The second thing we look at is Jesus' finished work. So Jesus' character and his work. If I were Thomas, I would have a C for you. But his crucifixion, we we could call it that. Right? Our confidence rests on the foundation of Christ's finished work. Right? We can never please God by even our best attempts at obedience. Right? According to the author of Hebrews, we can have assurance before God because Jesus died and rose again and is now seated in heaven. So Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Brothers and sisters, when we come to Christ, he completely cleanses us from our sin. His perfect righteousness becomes ours when we're united to him. He took all of our wickedness on himself and gives us his holiness as a gift. Before, we could never approach God with confidence because of our sin. But now, the author of Hebrews says, we we draw near in full assurance of faith, knowing that God accepts us and loves us. Not because of our goodness, but because of what Jesus has done for us. And then finally, third thing about Christ is his promises. Let me give you uh, just three of them. In John's gospel, John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christians are those whom God the Father has given to God the Son. But we should never think, great, well, how do I know? 
maybe I'm not in that group of people. Maybe I'm going to go to Jesus and he's going to reject me. He's going to look at the list and be like, you're not on here. Sorry, buddy. No, Jesus tells us, if you come to him, he will never cast you out. You never need to fear that your sin or your unloveliness will make Jesus draw back from you. The second promise comes from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And apart from Christ, our sin separates us from God. But here, God promises that in Christ, he is faithful to cleanse and to forgive when we come to him. The third promise is in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to worry about sinning our way out of God's love. And when we are in Christ, we cannot be separated from the love of God. See, all of God's promises of, of mercy and grace and forgiveness, those things that we need most in order to have assurance, they are ours when we come to Christ. They're, they're Jesus's to give out because all of God's promises find their yes in him, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Our confidence, our assurance can never finally rest in what we've done. Right again, think back to those people in Matthew chapter 7, the, the deluded ones who are going to be shocked on the last day that their, their assurance was, was rooted in the wrong thing. Right? Notice where they place their confidence. They were looking to their own resume of religious accomplishments, and, and understandably so. They had cast out demons. I've never done that. They had prophesied. I don't think I've done that. They, they've done mighty works. That's pretty good. Their assurance was rooted in, in those things, the things that they had done. But ultimately, no one is able to compile a resume that's able to please God and provide them with confidence and assurance. Instead, our only hope is that Jesus has promised salvation to anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in him. We can build our assurance on no other foundation other than the greatness and the kindness of Christ. So the Scottish theologian John Murray put it this way. He said, The faith and love of the believer have their ebb and flow. They are subject to all sorts of fluctuation. That's why assurance is hard sometimes, right? But the security of the believer rests in the faithfulness of God. It is upon, it is upon the determinativeness and stability of God's gifts that our hearts must rest if we are not to be driven about by fluctuating tempers or temperatures of our own experience. And I think before we move on, I think this then is where the sacraments find their proper place in our assurance. Properly understood, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are, again, are not primarily about me and my faith, but they're about the Lord Jesus and the promises of God that are mine in him. When I look back at my baptism, I'm reminded that I have died with Christ and I've been raised again to newness of life. 
When I come to the Lord's Supper, I am reminded that Jesus died for me and all of these other brothers and sisters, that Jesus invites us to come and commune with him by faith, no matter what my week has been like. The ordinances give us an opportunity to exercise our faith in Jesus together. And that gives us assurance as we take hold of all of God's promises that are wrapped up in the, in the tender character and work of Jesus. Okay, so with all that said, I think we're ready now then for the, the third point, to consider what things can give us assurance then that we really are converted. So I want us to ground our assurance in Jesus. But the Bible does say that conversion produces change in us. And it's not random, haphazard change that looks really different in you than it does in me. But the Bible actually tells us some really specific things we can look for uh, to see if, in fact, we've been converted. So let me suggest four things that we can look for in our lives that will give us assurance of faith. First, we should look to see if we have faith in Christ today. So the author of Hebrews wants his readers to be certain that their faith is genuine. So he writes to them in Hebrews 3, verse 14, We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. A little bit later in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, he, he tells them that they can have very certain hope in Jesus, but, but they have to continue on in faith and patience. Hebrews 6, verse 11. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Paul said something similar to the Colossians. He said they could have great confidence in their salvation if they continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It's Colossians 1.23. As Todd helped us to see earlier uh, today, a genuine Christian will persevere in the faith. When it comes to assurance, the, the important question is not, have I professed faith in Christ at some point in the past? The question is, am I trusting in Christ right now for my salvation? If you have to put, put, point back to some distant event in the past for evidence that you have some interest in Christ, you might wonder if you're genuinely saved. But if you've continued trusting Christ over time, if you're trusting Christ right now, then you have reason to have assurance of your salvation. The second thing we should look for is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So let me read to you from Romans chapter 8. Just listen for all the if statements here. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, it's really clear. If you have the spirit dwelling in you, you're saved. You've been converted. And if you don't, 
you're not. So the question then is, how do I know that I have the Spirit of God dwelling in me? In one sense, it can be difficult to know, but right, the, the, the Spirit coming into you, it's not like getting a tattoo on your arm. You can see that it happened. It, it doesn't work quite that way. But the Scriptures do give us indicators of what the Spirit's presence looks like in us. So let me point out three, three indicators of the, the Spirit's presence in our life. And yes, if you're taking notes, I realize I'm about to give you three subpoints under the second subpoint of point three, right? I never said I was good at this, all right? There was a, a rhetoric professor that I met last night. So if you want my manuscript to show your students what not to do, great. But here we go. Uh, evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life, three points. Uh, first, uh, people who are indwelt by the Spirit of God believe the truth about Jesus. Right? We can only believe rightly by the power of the Spirit. So Paul observes in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 3 uh, says that if we believe in the name of, of Jesus Christ, then we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he's given us. The, the second the evidence of the Spirit's presence in our life is simply the, the fruit of the Spirit. Right, you can tell where the Spirit is at work because his fingerprints will be all over a believer's life. Right, Paul famously tells us what to look for in Galatians chapter 5. Right, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we'll see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives if the Spirit is living in us. And thirdly, the Spirit will testify to us that we are God's children. A believer will normally have a, a subjective inner sense that they are being led by God's Spirit to follow Him and to cry out to Him as our Father. So in Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Elsewhere in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Right? The, the Spirit gives us a sense, normally as believers, uh, that we are God's children. He bears witness with our spirit. Okay. So the third of the four things we should look for is evidence of our conversion. So we said um, faith today, the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, next up, obedience to God's word. The presence, I think, of unchecked sin in our lives should provoke us to question whether or not we've really been converted. But the presence of the Holy Spirit's fruit, as we talked about a moment ago, should encourage us to believe that we belong to God. In John chapter 13, Jesus simply tells us that if we love him, we will keep his commandments. Right? Like David, we should be able to say that God's word is like, is like honey in our mouths that it's not a burden. Now, it's important to remember we shouldn't, we shouldn't think that we'll ever perfectly keep God's law, right? We'll never perfectly exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in this life. Rather, what we're looking for here 
It is the trajectory of our life. The question we want to ask is, with the people who know you well, the, the brothers and sisters that you've covenanted together with in the church, would they say that you're generally characterized by obedience to God's word? When God's word tells you something that you may not want to hear. When it calls on you to believe something that doesn't fit your preferences and prejudices. Do you trust God's word or do you trust yourself? As you examine your day-in, day-out attitude towards the Word of God, do you generally see and delight in the wisdom of it? Does it make you happy to obey God? The work of God's Spirit will cause us to love and to submit our lives to the Word that He's inspired. Then the fourth thing we can look for is a pattern of, of growth in spiritual maturity over time. See, the, the genuineness of our faith is, is marked less by our current spiritual maturity and more by the overall pattern of our lives, right? At any one moment, you might feel bogged down in sin. You might feel weary. You might be struggling to grow. Perhaps you've been losing your temper a lot lately. Or if you're honest, you've had a really, really lousy attitude at work. And you know it's wrong, and you keep saying you're going to do better, but if you're being honest, it seems like it's getting worse. And so does that mean that you're not a Christian? Does that mean that you can't really have assurance of faith? Well, not necessarily. I think to get a good read on your spiritual condition, you need to look at the big picture. Right? Have you seen growth in your life in any of these areas? Right? Even if you're disappointed in yourself right now, can you see ways in which you've changed and matured maybe in the last five years. I once heard a very helpful illustration uh, from my, my counseling professor at Westminster, David Pallison. He gave this really helpful illustration of the Christian life. He said the pattern of our life, the pattern of our growth is like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down, right? You know a yo-yo, down, up. It's true, isn't it? And it's a little depressing, Right? One day, I feel like I have sin beat. The next day, I feel like I'm back at the beginning. But that's our life. We're like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down. But that's not it. There's more to the illustration. The pattern of our life, the pattern of our growth is like a yo-yo, but it's like a yo-yo in the hands of a man walking up a flight of steps. Right? If, we, if we stood at the base of these steps with a yo-yo, we walked up, Right? The, the yo-yo's experience is up and down, up and down, up and down. But, but over time, it's reached a much higher level. Right? That's a much more encouraging image. In the day-to-day, -day, we may be acutely aware of the yo-yo going up and down as we battle against sin. But we, we need to see the larger picture of the growth and the maturity that God is graciously working in us as he carries us up a flight of steps. Even our low points now are, are higher than our high points used to be. So you might still struggle with bursts of anger at your children, right? up and down, up and down. But if you're a Christian, over time, you and your, your friends and your brothers and sisters in the church should be able to see that you're gradually becoming more loving, that your outbursts of anger are more rare, less violent, shorter in duration. You're quicker to seek repentance. You know, in my own life, 
I would say one of my great struggles with sin is, is being able to take criticism from my wife. Uh, something about the nature of the relationship, uh, I, you, know, you could come up to me and say, look, you are literally the worst conference speaker I've ever seen in my life. And I'd be like, oh, wow, uh, thank you for that feedback. I, you know, it wouldn't bother me at all. <laughs> but if my wife suggests that I put a spoon in the dishwasher the wrong way, I'm like, what's wrong with you? you know, I, and so over time, I have struggled against this sin, struggled with, with getting angry at her. I don't get angry at people, right? Yelling at her. Right? It's just, it's something that I have struggled with. It, and, and, you know, it feels like, oh, I make this progress. Oh, I have this insight. Oh, now I see at the root of it. Now I've grown. You know, the yo-yo's up. Only to see the yo-yo go back down. Only over the course, I would say, of 25 years of marriage. Only, only now recently do I feel like, oh, I can see growth. Right? I can see the, the Holy Spirit producing self-control in me. I can see the, the idolatry that's sort of at the, the root of my anger and frustration more clearly now. Right? At any one given moment where I'm acting like a total moron, you might look at me and be like, no way, that guy's a Christian. Right? But, but God in his grace is carrying me up that flight of steps. The people in my life around me, even my wife's able to say, yeah, you're not, you're not perfect. And yeah, sometimes you make a mistake, but I see God at work in your life. I see how you're growing. Right? We, we can put more flesh on this in the Q&A. But what we're trying to do is hold two things here in tension. On one hand, we want to avoid the kind of presumption that encourages unconverted people to have assurance of salvation. Right? That's spiritually disastrous because then they're never going to listen when they hear the gospel. They're going to think, I've had that, I've tried that, I've got that, I don't need that. On the other hand, we don't want to slip into what Luther called the theology of glory, where we look at ourselves and we look for the good things about us rather than looking to Jesus and what he's done for us. So we have to insist on both. We should expect to see the fruit of conversion in our lives. And when we see it, that ought to give us some confidence that the Spirit's at work. But in the end, our only comfort in life and death, we have to insist, our only comfort in life and death is that I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 